it is Palm Sunday this morning. It's a special day. So what that means is I'd like you to meet our palms here on this side and that side because they will be giving their lives for you. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Now they look healthy and vibrant this morning. But after this morning, we're going to go hide them in a dark, dark room and we're going to wait for them to die. For an entire year, they're going to slowly, slowly die. And then next year, on the first day of Lent, on Ash Wednesday, we're going to burn them, and we're going to turn them into ash. And it's going to end up on a few of you people who are lucky enough to have it on you, right? Excited? You're like, no, this is ridiculous. I had no clue. Those poor little palms. It's kind of like discussion about your, with your kids about hamburgers, right? Dad, where's the hamburger come from? Son, you don't want to know where your hamburger comes from. Just enjoy it in bliss, right? With these palms, this morning, we, we, we enjoy the vitality, the life. The, the green in the palm is supposed to remind us about just the, the joy, the, the hope of new life, of, of life springing up in darkness and uh, plants and life blooming in winter. And what happens is at the same time that we as Christians have the joy of celebrating life, we also have to be able to go back and celebrate the other. We celebrate light, but we also acknowledge this world is dark. And so this is the last week of Lent. We are entering what we call um, Holy Week. Now, uh, if our church was a little bit more liturgical, we'd have a bunch of services this week. We'd go through Holy Week. We'd go through the story uh, of the, the, the path of Jesus to the cross. And so in this week, we've been spending Lent preparing ourselves. We've been been trying to get our minds right, trying to get our hearts engaged, trying to wake ourselves up. And so, if anything, I think we started strong. How many of you guys feel awake this morning? Terrific. About as many of you guys who are excited to read from the Bible this morning, too, right? Who wants to read the Bible? Three people. Terrific. I'm glad we have some really faithful Christians in the house this morning. And so here we are on Palm Sunday. A Sunday which, of the entire Holy Week, is probably the one day that's the least understood. Who here feels like you have a good grasp on what Palm Sunday is about? Amen. She's like, yes, and I went to Catholic school. I know all about it. <laughs> we are going to learn this morning. Now, here's why you have to understand Palm Sunday. I'll say this. Who here is a cheater, and when you read, you go to the end first? Raise your hand, cheaters. Cheater, who else? Two, three, any more? What is this? <laughs> Sometimes. What kind of books do you go to the end on? Sometimes. How do you know the story if you go to the end? It depends on the cover is what you're trying to tell me. Okay, okay, it depends on the cover. I got you. Okay. We as Christians in this room, we are some of the worst about going to the end of the story first. Here's why. You think you understand Jesus. You think you understand that book you have. We think we understand the cross, but here's the problem. How can you understand the end if you haven't read the body? How do you understand the end if you don't know the beginning, if you don't know the meat of the story? You see, Palm Sunday is one of the most pivotal setups for the cross. Palm Sunday is what tells us what the cross 
means. It informs us. It tells us the cross means this. And because Palm Sunday means this type of thing, the cross can't mean anything else but a connection to Palm Sunday. So the way that you understand Palm Sunday will tell you how you understand the cross. Now, if we're all being honest, most of us just don't understand Palm Sunday at all, which is fair. In the churches that I grew up in, we just didn't even talk about Palm Sunday. I mean, I think I remember a couple Sundays where we had palms. I don't remember really understanding much. I remember we had a story we talked about how the people waved the palms in the air. That's pretty cool, right? But it didn't really connect for me. Like, what is the point of the story? Who's been to a wedding before? Come on, hands. Who's been to a wedding? Okay. Do you feel like you understood what was going on at the wedding? Yeah? There's all sorts of built-in information in a wedding. There are ceremonies and acts and symbols which you instinctively know because you grew up in a culture that has already taught you to understand certain things. Now, you might not even understand it fully. For example, start with an easy one. Why is is the female wearing a white dress? It's a symbol of what? Purity. How about a second easy one? Why do we hand rings? What is this, this circle of, of metal about? Unbroken, never-ending, eternal love. Terrific. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Right. Do you know what that symbol comes from? See, your ring is supposed to be a mirror image of the relationship of God, a God who is triune, the Trinity. A God who is interconnected in Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A God who is one, but many, and they're so interlocked, they will forever be one, forever interrelating to each other. The ceaseless relationship of knowing and being known. So do you know that one? Why is it that that the Father of the bride walks all the way up to the, the altar? Why? Holler it. Because she's a piece of property, right? Silence. Silence. Because the father owns her, because this comes from patriarchal society, right? The father owns her, and the father's going to give her to the only other person who can own property, which is what? The man. Aren't you excited? Amen. Why do some people get married underneath, you know, a, I, I wasn't going Jewish, okay? Some people will have uh, ornate dressings on the altar, and you'll, you'll come and you'll, you'll stand under a covering. What is that symbolic of? Yeah, sure, blessing. The idea that God is presiding, that God is present, that when you are doing this, this thing, you're not doing it alone. You're stepping into something in the presence of God. But even more than that, why is there a minister involved? Who is the minister symbolic of? Jesus. So next time you guys see me doing a wedding, be like, man, that guy's full of himself. (laughs) Standing in for Jesus. Mercy. We have all these things inside this, this ceremony, but if you are a foreigner to this culture, and you sat in a room, and you watch someone come in in a white dress, and you're going, that's an interesting choice. 
Mm, okay, I wouldn't wear that any other day. I wonder what that's about. And then here comes this, this father, and he walks. I wonder why she has to be walked. How come she can't walk herself? What's going on there? How come they're giving vows? What is, what is a vow? What's that piece of metal? How come, how, come this, this, how come we're praying right now? What are we praying about? Or even better, what's going on with the sand on the corner? Why are they pouring colored sand together? I mean, like three-year-olds and five-year-olds do that. What are we doing? Come on, guys. We're lighting candles now? What's, okay, we had two candles. Now we got one candle. What does this mean? There's meaning in, hidden inside these acts. Do you see what I'm saying? And if you don't understand all of these different symbols and acts that build up to it, you have no idea what's really happening here. And even if you do, you only have a partial understanding. So for us with Palm Sunday, there's a lot we have to kind of get in on. There's all sorts of inside information that we don't have, and so we misunderstand what's going on on Palm Sunday. So let's talk about a few of these different things that are going on here on Palm Sunday. Um, first of all, with Palm Sunday, understand this. We are, we are connecting dots, as Jesus, he loves to do. We are connecting dots, okay? There is a prophecy from Zechariah that talks about how there's, the Messiah is going to enter the city a certain way. And when the Messiah is sent from God, he's going, he's going to come in from a certain direction. And when he comes in this direction, he's going to come in on a certain animal. And this animal is going to say a lot about who this king is. Now, even bigger than that, we have a story about a people who know what it is to suffer. Uh, who knows what the word empire means? Have you guys ever heard the, the word empire? Okay. Empire, it's a concept that you have so much power, you have so much control over so much, that you are able to, to basically to dominate. What you want to be done is done instantly. And so the greatest empires on this planet have all seemingly each had their turn at conquering Israel. Here's Israel. Their first taste of empire is Egypt. And then from Egypt, they find out what it's like with the Babylonians and the Assyrians they find out what's going on. They find out what it's like to be under the, the Greeks. And now the Romans, they know what it's like to have someone subdue them. Um, who's a younger child? Okay. When you wrestled with your, with your brothers, sisters, when you were the younger child, do you know what it is to be subdued? Right? To have your older <laughs> brother, sister, get on top of you and hold you down. Right? And they can slap you. They can do like wet willies. You get the idea, right? It's cute, but there's something about that that brings in, that brings out the most primal rage in someone. Who here has hulked out whenever you were being held down? Just lost your mind. You went for eyeballs for other things. Yes? Okay. There's something about it that brings out, it tells you this is wrong. Someone else shouldn't have the ability to control me, to, to subdue me, to, to force their will on me. There's something so deep in humans that tells us this is not right, and, and whatever I have to do to get them off of me, I'm going to do. Now, the story of this people, every generation, minus only a couple, have spent their entire lives being subdued, held down. The word means like bound and tied, right? being held down, subdued, tied. Can you imagine the angst, the, just the built-up of anger and frustration 
that you would feel experiencing this your entire life, and that your children would feel that their entire life, and so on and so forth. The Jews were known for being a very violent people. The Romans were actually very, very nervous about the Jews because in recent history, the Jews, a very small people group, have been able to throw off the power of, of the Greeks. They were vicious. During the Maccabean revolt, which is something that when Jesus was growing up, he would have heard stories about this revolt. The blood flowed in the streets because the Jews were such efficient, passion-filled warriors. These people are feeling this oppression so deeply that they're, they're willing to do whatever it takes to free themselves. And not only that, they have an entire history of sacred stories that their God has told them that there will be a time when I will come and help you. I will come help you rip off the person who's been holding you down and punish them for what they've done to you. So not only are they, are they ready for it, they're ready for God to help them do it. And the way that God's going to help them do it, he's going to send this, this powerful king. He's going to be like all the kings that were the most powerful in history. He's going to be like King David, the one who was able to strip down all of the powerful forces. And he's going to be like, he's going to lead us to take those people who have held us down, and we're going to turn the tables. We're going to get them, and we're going to put them on the ground, and we are going to have our way with them. This is the setting of the, the arrival of Jesus. We're also tying into a different story. Who's the story of like Cain and Abel? Have you guys ever heard the story? Cain and Abel? Now, most of you have been taught about sin, and when you're taught about sin, you're being taught from Genesis 1 through 3. The idea that here's the garden, here's the tree, and the first sin was they ate the fruit. I'm not sure about you, but there are some worse sins I can imagine, correct, than eating that apple or that quince or like whatever that stupid fruit was, right? That seems like a pretty harsh punishment for, you know, taking a bite out of a pretty average piece of fruit. What's interesting about the story of sin is we don't really even see why God was so angry for, for quite some time. Here's Adam and Eve. Here's this occurrence. Here's this fruit. All of a sudden, they're on the outside of the garden, and now they're just having to live life, and they're having to, to, to kind of struggle to survive. And, and this entire time, they're thinking to ourselves, what happened? What, what is the big deal? What was so grievous and serious that we had to be moved out and be, and be corrected and punished so severely? And what's interesting is we don't even see the full fruit of sin until their children. See, there's something about this. There's something about the way that we are as people that sometimes what's in us doesn't even come to the surface until we hand it to our children. And so what we see is in Cain and Abel, we see for the first time why God responds the way he did to sin. We see the first human death. No one has died from old age or from the flu or from falling on a rock. No one has ever seen a human being stop breathing before. And it's fitting. It's fitting that the first time that Adam and Eve see what they did, they see it as they see 
through one child take the life of the other. And if you've read Genesis before, you see that this is just the beginning. This is the foundation. And that these two children of Adam and Eve have now taught their parents why God responded the way He did. What happens when man pushes off God from their lives? Death happens. And not just dying. It's not just dying from old age or, or from cancer. It's grievous and awful as all of those things are. There's something so wrong with man being the culprit. And so if you read Genesis, from there on it becomes a book about conquest. And you see all these tribes begin to multiply. And all these tribes begin to go off and they have their own cities, their own lands. And then some tribes begin to get bigger than other tribes. And now there's a problem. Because the moment that someone gets bigger than someone else, what is possible? Domination, right? To subdue to enforce your will on someone else. And once this one tribe gets so big, they begin to go out and to subdue, to put down, to put their will over other tribes. And the way they're doing this is the same way that the first children of Adam and Eve did it. Force, violence, death. And as you read the Scriptures, it gets so normal. This is just the way things happen. And all of a sudden, there becomes a point where even the tribe of God begins to think, this is the way, this is just the world, this is just the way the world works. This is how we have to, to act to survive in this world. And they begin to get swept up in it. And then they begin to desire, you know what, what if one day we could be the big guy? What if we could be the person who gets to subdue the other? What if one day we would get that kind of power? And so then this tribe of God, which goes all the way back to the garden, begins to have this dream. We cannot wait until that king comes, and when that king comes, he will give us power. He will give us the ability to subdue those around us. Now, with that being the stage, here comes Jesus. We all have heard about Jesus. He's this great teacher. He does these signs and wonders, these miracles. He's fitting the description of what they were told the Messiah was going to be like. And then he's, he's even doing things intentionally. He's intentionally going out of his way to, to do things that they were told in the prophets that the Messiah was going to do. And so here's Matthew. And as Matthew is beginning to, to tell his story of what Jesus did, let's go back to Matthew 21. Let's go to a verse... I haven't used paper in a long time. I had to kill some trees today. Verse 7. Here we go. And so they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them, on both of them. And then he sat on them. By the way, that's quite the feat. You know, can you imagine having like, you know, here's the donkey, the mother, and here's the, the colt. Can you imagine trying to sit on both? You guys don't read very, like, detailed, do you? You should have questions about this. Jesus is riding two donkeys at once. He's the coolest Messiah ever. We'll talk about this some of the day. There are ways to understand that. But anyway, so according to Matthew, he's riding on these two donkeys at the same time. Now, a large crowd spread their, their clothes on the road. Well, others cut palm branches off the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Let's just kind of pause here. First of all, 
Who is your best friend? Just got to think about it. Who is your best friend? When they come into town, is your reaction to say, let's put out the red carpet for them. I love them so much. Let's just lay the red carpet out because this person is so awesome. Maybe. I didn't see any hands. Okay. How about this? Who is the one person in this life who you just have the most honor for? You just think they're amazing. They're the best ever. All that kind of stuff, right? When they come, to what extent are you going to try to like just, man, I am so glad you're here. I want to make sure everything is perfect for you. Well, of course, in this day and age, we're talking about they're coming down these dirty, nasty, muddy roads. And so a custom at this time was when there comes someone who is of the greatest importance, which in this culture is a, you know, a king, someone of power, when someone comes and you want something from them, here's how we respond. Here comes royalty. I'm going to do something to show I'm excited for their arrival. And so in this time and age, what they're doing is they're taking off their clothes and they're, they're laying it on the road to keep the dust from coming up. I'm, I'm not sure if you can picture it, but imagine a dusty road with horses coming down, with everyone walking and kicking. There's going to be dust. It's going to be kind of a mess. And so they're laying down their, their cloaks, and then there's other people who find these palm branches. They're laying them on the ground to, to create this pathway. They're, they're, they're preparing the way of the Lord as he enters. Now, what they are seeing here, this is, this is a very clear tell, that they are seeing the entrance of a king. Here comes someone with power. And see, in the, in the, in the Old Testament prophets, there were some stories about which, which side of the city the Messiah would come into. Would he come in the west, which is a, a side of the city that, that many kings have come into after battle, or would he come in the east gate? And we see that he comes in the east gate, which had this really kind of a sweet name to it, right? The sheep gate. How cool is that? So here comes this, this, this Messiah who's going to save us from everything, and he's coming in riding in the east gate. But what's interesting about this? What's, what's kind of the symbol? What are we missing here in the story? Here's what we're, here's what we're missing. What we're missing is that in the same week, Pilate, the regional governor from Rome, he is entering the city on the what gate? West gate. And as he comes in the west gate, he's coming in the west gate the same way that so many kings have come before him, both the Jewish kings and the foreign kings. He's coming in with a, with a, with a show of arms, of force. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of leaders wanting to make a show of their arms and force before. Yeah, it's called a military parade, right? Have you ever heard of those before? Yes, we'll just leave it at that. Here comes Pilate with his, his show of arms, which means first are going to be the phalanxes. We're going to see all the, the foot soldiers. And then here come those who are riding on the horses. And then in the middle of it with the banners. And the banners say something, by the way. The banners say, Caesar is Lord. And here comes Pilate riding in. And by the way, he's greeted with palm branches as well. And he comes in the same way that every other king has ever come in. Every other force has ever come in. They're coming, showing their power. Now, when Jesus comes in the East Gate, he comes in in a certain way. He comes in riding this animal, which, which Matthew highlights. He comes in riding a donkey, the, he, specifically the young colt of a donkey. Now, what is this about? Why is this even important? What are we missing in the story? What you're missing is, is, is this. In this culture, there are horses for different duties and jobs. 
There are, how do I say this? What's the equivalent to this? If, if someone had a Humvee and they showed up for like a, a race, you know, for like a drag race, would you say, I think you're at the wrong place? Okay? If, if someone showed up at the farm with a Corvette, would you say, that doesn't work? Okay, right? Okay, we understand? Same thing. When you show up to, to, to demonstrate your power, you show up with a tank. You show up with cavalry, with a tall, sturdy, mature, muscled-up horse. Because, see, the only people who ride donkeys, beasts of burden, as Matthew outlines in the verse, are people who have to work. People who have to get dirty. It, so Jesus doesn't arrive in a tank. He, he arrives in a pickup truck. Just think about this image. He, on the other side, here comes the other power, tanks, soldiers, weapons. On the east gate, here he comes in a pickup truck. <laughs> Perfect image. It's beautiful. It's also an image of the working man, right? I don't know many kings or presidents who drive around in pickup trucks. Do you? We're going to see Donald Trump in a pickup truck this morning, right? When he shows up at the White House, he could be the F-150, right? Here's the biggest thing I want you to see. I want you to see that this it's the same God from Mount Sinai. This is the same God of thunder and lightning and fire. This is the same God who destroyed the Egyptian army. This is the same God who had his angels work to do amazing feats of force and power in the Old Testament. This is the God who can and could demonstrate any amount of force he wanted to. I mean, if he wanted to, if he wanted to enter the city and just show the force that he could, I mean, again, I mean, you know, I'm not sure what kind of imagination you have. I'm sure he could do anything he wanted to scare the poop of anyone who would want to oppose him. I'm sure if he wanted to, if he wanted to have angels appear and fire come down from heaven and lightning and like the waters roar and the earth shake, I'm sure that Caesar would have been like, okay, you win. Your parade was bigger than mine, <laughs> Right? But he doesn't. And the question for us is always this, why? Why doesn't he? Because the people he's coming to have been waiting and waiting and waiting for their chance. And while they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the, you know, the king, while they're proclaiming peace, what you know is in the back of their mind. Even though they're saying peace, you know what they're expecting. They're saying peace, but they're expecting war. Because that's how humans do things. Have you ever heard of peace without war before? You're American, you shouldn't. No, we only know one thing. Peace through force. We will keep everything nice and calm and comfy as long as we keep our soldiers in their countries. Correct? Correct? This is how it works. This is how this world works, right? And this is what's going on in the back of their minds. 
Yeah, they're saying peace, but what they really mean is I'm, I can't wait for Rome to get theirs. It's finally time. God is finally going to give us the power to have our way. It's our turn to be on top of the hill now. And so Palm Sunday is a test. Palm Sunday was a test then. Palm Sunday is a test now. Palm Sunday, for them, it was a test of this. Are you willing to accept a Messiah and a King and a Savior who's not going to save you from what you want Him to save you from? Sit with that for a second. Are you going to accept a Savior who's not going to give you what you've been hoping for? Now, there are a lot of things that it's dangerous to take from people. It's dangerous to take someone else's food. Right? It's dangerous, you know, to, to, to take someone else's vehicle. It's dangerous to take someone else's spouse. Very dangerous, right? But at the same time, there's something that's very much more dangerous, and that's to take someone's hope. And they've been waiting for thousands of years. We can't possibly understand this. They've been waiting for thousands of years. They've been hoping and hoping, and that is all that they've had is hope. And here's this Messiah threatening to take their hope, because to them, he's not the one we've been waiting for. Because we have been waiting for someone who has the bigger tanks, who has the bigger army. We have been waiting for someone who has real power, real power. For example, if I say, the answer to Syria, to Russia, to China is love and grace and compassion, what's your response? Be honest. BS, right? That's all of your honest response because you're human. If I ran for office today, I said, America, we're going to make America love again. How many votes do you think I would get? That doesn't sell. And why does it not sell? Because that's not what you want. That's not what I want. Oh, we're going to make America the servant of the world again. Who's voting for that president? We're going to take our entire army, and we're going to go use them to go like build everyone else's countries. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take our budget we use for bombs, and we're going to go feed the hungry in the world. And everyone goes, let's wait for another candidate. I might vote Democrat, <laughs> right? Come on. Be honest. And that's all of us. That is not what we want. And... and Here's why. Because we can't possibly imagine that that kind of a thing, that that way of doing things would ever accomplish anything on this earth. Here's the biggest challenge from Palm Sunday. Do you really want a king? Do you really want a God? Do you really want a Savior who's from heaven? Or would you rather have one from earth? And if you know the Scriptures, you know this is the same question being asked over and over again. What's so interesting about the people of Israel saying, Behold, the Son of David, as Jesus comes in. There never would have been a David if they would have accepted God. 
He was the one who offered to be their king, and they said, no, 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 no. I don't think that's going to work. Because see, all these other countries, we've never seen anything get done without real power before. And the reason that we don't get Easter, the reason we don't understand the resurrection, the reason we don't understand the cross, is because we don't understand this. That to be a Christian, to embrace Jesus, is to embrace a Savior and a way of saving the world that is not of this world. It's heavenly. So every, you know, so every Sunday, I'm going to make us recite it over and over again. Our Father who is in heaven, who's not like us, who doesn't do things the way we do it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The way you would do it, do it here. The way you do things there, do them here. Let me reinterpret that. The way that you wanted things to happen in the garden, let them happen in the garden now, here. And even though it's 2,000 years later, we continue to make the same mistake that they made. We continue to ignore what kind of a Savior Jesus is, what kind of a world He's going to create, and how He's going to do it. And if you don't understand Palm Sunday, if you want to cut Palm Sunday off and kind of move it out of the way, you can turn the cross into anything you want to turn it into. See, that, that's what's awful about reading the end of a book, cheaters. If you only read the end, then you can retell the entire story however you want to and say, oh, no, no, we'll see what the ending means this because I want it to mean this. Some of the best books in history have very frustrating endings. You say, I don't want it to end that way. But see, if you ask a writer, they say, the ending had to happen this way because it had to be true to the story. It had to fit the rest of what was happening. And see, we don't ever want that. We always want the, the fairy tale, picturesque ending. And what that means is we always want the ending that suits us. And so it doesn't matter what country you are in, what culture you are in, you will always continue to reinterpret Jesus and the Scriptures to be on your side to be coming to, to make you happy, to bless you, to prosper you, to make America great again. But if you allow the Scriptures to speak to you, if you allow Palm Sunday, if you bring that part of the story back in, if you reconnect Jesus to the Old Testament, if you reconnect Jesus to the story of the entire creation, you realize He's not on your side. He's not on Israel's side. He's not on Russia's side. He's not on anyone's side. He has always been on his side. And the only question is, whose side will you be on? So the question of Palm Sunday is always the same. Will you accept the Messiah that Jesus truly is? Or will you, will you accept Jesus the Messiah? Or would you rather create and make up one in your, in your own mind and just love and serve and pray to that Jesus? And the problem is, is that the way of Jesus, it's hard for every single person and culture 
the gospel of Jesus rubs against every human culture on the earth. It rubs against every ego. It rubs against every human logic. It rubs against everything that's of the earth because it's not of the earth. And so if Palm Sunday doesn't rub you the, the wrong way, you're not reading the Scriptures correctly. If Palm Sunday doesn't even bother you, that's because you don't get it yet. And if you don't get Palm Sunday, you, you still haven't gotten, you still don't understand what Easter is really about. Because the Easter is the only proof that Jesus, that this kind of doing things will actually work. See, we've seen missiles work before. We've seen what nuclear weapons can do to the world. We've seen what huge armies can do to the world. We've seen what technology and money can do in the world, but we've never seen what love and forgiveness can do in the world. And the only hope, the only glimpse, the only promise that that could actually work is in the power we see in the resurrection. The only, the, the only glimpse that God gives us to hold on to is, okay, maybe, just maybe, if this God is able to, to allow Jesus to overcome death, to raise him from death, then maybe that same God can do these things this way, even though nothing in this world tells me it's possible. Would you guys stand with me this morning? So we're going to end this morning in Palm Sunday with, with the Lord's table, with Eucharist. And again, I always used to, to be curious why liturgical churches would do this every Sunday. And again, you know, it's, it's probably because I didn't understand the Scriptures either back then, but we do this often, over and over and over again, because we need a reminder every single week of one, what type of God we serve, two, of how He's going to change the world, and three, a reminder of what we are called to. Because see, the world will always tell us, we'll see, if you just had more money, you could change the world. It will always tell you if you just had more power, if you just had more influence, if you were just bigger and better and stronger, if you were just, then you could change the world. But the gospel, but Palm Sunday tells us, no, no, no. The only thing that's going to save the world, sacrifice, love. These two words that to us sound childish and feeble and weak, that's the entire point. See, to be a Christian, it, it, it doesn't take faith to believe in how the world is created or in the resurrection. The faith comes in here, comes in, is this really possible to make this world right through these childish, powerless things? So, Father, we ask that as we come for, to your table, Holy Spirit, we ask that you just prepare us that you would begin to jumpstart our imaginations, Lord, that we would allow the Spirit of God to birth in us the ability to see the possibilities in following the way of Jesus.